last week we looked at John the Baptist and we ended with John speaking of the one who was to come, the one who was greater than him, the one whose sandals he felt that he was unworthy to stoop down to even untie. He said that I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now this one who is greater than John is coming into view in today's uh, sermon text. You'll find it printed in your bulletin right in the middle. It's if you open up right in the middle, you'll have on one side the sermon text, on the other side sermon notes. You can fill those in as we go along if you so desire. Uh, if you're able now, would you please rise out of respect for God's word as I read to you Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. This is the inspired word of God. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak even now. We pray that indeed you would. Give us ears to hear your truth, eyes to see your glory, and hearts to trust in you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see today Jesus bursting onto the scene of Mark's gospel. And, and we want to consider who he is, of course. Uh, we, we need to consider how he relates in different ways. As you'll notice in your, your sermon outline... We're specifically looking at three things, how Jesus relates to God, how Jesus relates to Satan, and how Jesus relates to us. So we'll just jump right in, and, and if you are taking notes and want to fill in the blanks, I'll kind of give you prompts as we go along. But, but first of all, that first one, how Jesus relates to God, the first fill in the blank is he is a fulfiller of righteousness. Jesus is a, a fulfiller of 
righteousness. We see in verse 9, in those days, he came from Nazareth of Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, now you can see here how as Mark tells this story, he, he tells things in, in very few words. He speaks very briefly, very quickly. I mean, we had, just in today's text, four different stories that he tells. And, and they're all, you know, two sentences maybe. He just, boom, boom, and he moves on to the next thing. Uh, but, and, and we see this about the baptism. He, he speaks very briefly about it, doesn't give a whole lot of the details. He doesn't say, you know, it was a sunny day, and, and it, was, it was mild and breezy, and, you know, there was a smell of flowers in the air. As G- No, he, he's just, he's very quick to, the, to the, the point. But the fact that he speaks so briefly, so quickly, so, so succinctly, should not be mistaken as thinking, well, this is unimportant. Rather, it is extremely important, and Mark is showing that by putting it at the very beginning of, of Jesus' ministry. He doesn't begin somewhere else and build up to this point. He doesn't start with a birth narrative like we see in, in Luke, you know, that extended birth narrative that he has. Uh, but, but here we begin with just his ministry is the baptism as a starting point. You know, it's, it's a very important thing to start there. When the apostles, for instance, in Acts 1, replaced Judas with a 12th apostle, what was the one main condition they said that they must have? They said, it has to be somebody who has been with us from his baptism and with us until he ascended, right? The baptism is seen as a, a pivotal point where things start for Jesus. He's been around for 30 years before that. And no doubt he was doing good things. No doubt he was, he was saying true things. No doubt he was still, even before that, the Son of God. But this is seen as a pivotal point in his ministry. It's where his ministry begins. And he comes and, and we're caused to ask, what exactly is going on here? Because remember, John the Baptist preached repentance and he he had a baptism of repentance but jesus wait jesus was perfect jesus had no sin he had no need to repent why exactly is he undergoing john's baptism of repentance if he has no sin for which he needs to repent well part of it is because he is acting as a representative of his people right you, me, those who are his, those who absolutely need to repent, right? He, he is a representative, like, like Al said moments ago in his words leading up to our unison scripture reading, whereas Adam was in the garden acting as our representative and failing, Jesus comes as a second Adam, a second representative of mankind, a second one who will undergo temptation but who will succeed, unlike Adam, who failed in the garden. Jesus is is willing to share in the heritage of his people. He is willing to share even in in their predicament that comes about as a result of their sin. In fact, he's willing to bear the burden of it all by himself. And so in submitting to John's baptism, Jesus is acknowledging that mankind is sinful, 
that mankind has fallen, that mankind is, is broken, and mankind stands under the curse as a result. But he is willing to endure that judgment for his people. He is both identifying with mankind and showing what a faithful man would do. He is, as Matthew puts it, fulfilling all righteousness. This is necessary because it is the righteousness of Christ that is the only righteousness that will save. Right? <clears throat> Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that he became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. His righteousness exchanged for our sin. It, it's traded. He, he picks up our responsibilities. Like just last night, just last night I went out to dinner with some, some people and, and, and one of them said to me, said to me, yeah, you know, put that on our bill. Uh, no, no, no. He's like, nope, I'm paying for it. And he took the tab and he paid for it. And there, were, there was nothing left for me to do at that point, right? I couldn't have paid for my meal if I wanted to. That's what Jesus has done for us. He's, he's taken the tab, he's taken the bill, and he's paid for it. And that's really good news for us because, because you know what? We don't have the financial resources to be able to pay for the bill. Right? The debt that we owe on account of our sin is far too great for us to be able to pay. And even if we had the resources, which again we don't, but even if we did and we wanted to pay, the bill has already been paid. Let's say, let's say you had your bill paid and you went and you say, hey, I, I need to pay this. And you know, the waiter will say, no, it's already been paid. Maybe you've had that happen before. Maybe you've gone through the drive-thru at Starbucks. And they say, well, the person in front of you paid your bill already. Right? Now, now, you can do something nice. You can say, I, I'm going to pay it forward or whatever, right? I'm going, to, I'm going to pay for the person behind me. But that doesn't pay off your bill at all. Your bill's already paid. But what you do as a response to that, right, because my bill has been paid, I want to do something nice for somebody else. That's the essence of the Christian life, right? Not that we somehow earn a righteousness, but rather we have had our righteousness purchased for us. And in response to that, we want to live a life of goodness. That's like the choir just sang before this, shining the light of Christ, right? His light shining through us and out into the world. Not because we are good, but because Christ is so good. Amazing thing happened when Jesus was baptized. We see in verse 10 when he came up out of the water immediately, and there's that word that we will see throughout Mark today and really throughout our whole study. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. The Greek word that stands behind that is schizo, right? We, we have our word schism comes from that, right? Of, you know, it's a split, you know, being torn asunder, or, or even like our word uh, schizophrenia, right? That's when you have kind of two totally separate personalities. You've got this one here and this one here, and they're, they're unconnected, right? The, these two split personalities, that's the idea. And, and we see that something like that's been happening here. There's, there's this, this torn nature of heaven. It says heaven was torn open. This word is only used to describe one other event in the book of Mark. It's at the end of the book of Mark when Jesus dies, right? And what do we remember happens then? But the, the temple curtain, the veil that separated 
the Holy of Holies where God resided and the rest of the place was torn in two. From top to bottom, we're told, when Jesus died, right? Because God resided behind the veil and, and man was separated from God because of, of our sin. And this veil represented that. It stood in between, but, but through the death of Christ Jesus, that veil was torn from top to bottom. And the same thing is happening here. God is up in the heavens. He is removed from us. We can't see him. We can't hear him. He is there. But we see that the heavens were torn open so that God could actually descend down on Jesus, that he could speak in that day. Remember, it was a, a dark and silent time. It had been four centuries since a prophet of God had spoken. Things seemed bleak. Most Jews believed that the age of prophecy was gone. God seemed so far removed. Surely the, the heart's cry that they had as the people of God was those words that we said to start out our service today in Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. But now this actually is happening. The heavens are torn open, and God does descend. He does descend on the person of Jesus. Jesus, who is a member of the Trinity. That's our second fill-in-the-blank section there. Jesus is a member of the Trinity. Now, the Trinity is kind of tricky. I'll admit it. Um, you know, whenever we try to come up with a metaphor or an analogy, we're, we're at best going to fall short. At worst, we're going to fall into heresy. Uh, and, and that's just the reality. It, there's a mystery to it to say that God is three persons in one God. It, it's something that's, that's kind of outside of our ability to fully comprehend. And so, so we need to trust it. We believe it because that's what the Bible says is true. But, but we don't altogether understand it. But we, we do know that Jesus... The Son is here, and he's being baptized. We, we know that Jesus, Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. God, the Father, is in heaven. We hear him speaking down out of heaven here. And we see the Spirit descend as a dove. So we see all three persons of the Trinity here. We see this idea. And, and when the Spirit descends upon him like a dove, perhaps you've wondered, why, why a dove? I mean, what, what is it about a dove anyway? It's kind of an odd thing that the Spirit would descend like a dove. And part of the reason might be that, that doves represent certain things, right? They represent purity and, and gentleness and peacefulness, right? And, and, and these kind of things are, are very much like the fruit of the Spirit. And so it kind of makes sense in that, in that sense. But, but it goes beyond that, I think. I think what's happening here is Mark is, is giving us an indication, a pointer, uh, He's, he's taking us back to the very beginning of the Bible, back to Genesis 1, and, and in the creation of the heavens and the earth. You might recall that, that at the very beginning, we read that, that there were the waters, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And, and actually, the, the phrase that's used in the, in the Aramaic there literally says it fluttered over the water. And, and it's, it's the same word that would be used of a dove fluttering. And, and there's this idea that Mark is hearkening back now to, to this creation time, this 
this time where the triune God acted, right? The God the Father, he's, he's busy there. He says, let there be light, right? His word, he speaks by his word. And the Spirit is there hovering over. The triune God is creating there. And so now we see the triune God at work again in an act of recreation, as it were, a new beginning. It's kind of like back with Noah. Remember when the flood came and, and, and there was an act of recreation going on, a starting over. And what did Noah send out at that time? To find out if, if the flood had water, water had receded, if there was land again that had emerged out of the waters. He sent out a dove, right? We're being pointed by Mark. Which sometimes we, we think of these these ancient writers of scripture as being just these, these rubes who really didn't know much and they weren't very smart and, and we're so much smarter than them as modern thinkers now. But actually, the truth is their, their writing and their thought is so sophisticated. Granted, inspired by the Spirit of God is a help, but they, they, they are able to, to point us to things such as this, as a, a new creation, the establishment of a new creation. That's the good news of the kingdom of God, right? Because the the truth of the gospel is not just you get to go to heaven when you die, right? That's part of it, for sure, a very big part of it. But the good news of the gospel is not only you go to heaven when you die, but God is working, setting all things to rights. And that even right now, we are being made new. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Not he will become a new creation one day, but he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And so a voice came down from heaven and said, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. That's your next fill in the blank how Jesus relates to God he is a beloved son of the father a beloved son the only other time we will see God speak in such a matter from the heavens is is during the transfiguration of Christ and on that occasion he will say the exact very same thing this is my beloved son we, we mentioned last week, you might recall, about how Israel as a nation was, was supposed to be God's son, right? But had failed in many times and in many ways. And so Jesus comes along, on the other hand, and, and uniquely and perfectly fulfills this role as God's son. He did not become God's son at some point along the way, but rather was God's son eternally. On, on the other hand, we become children of God when he adopts us. But Jesus always was the son of God from his very beginning. And he knew that and he found great encouragement in that, no doubt. I remember when my father lay dying in a hospital bed and I would be there hours upon end and, and go home at night for just a few hours, get some sleep and come back. And that last week was a, a very special week, actually, the time I spent with him. And my dad was not a very emotive, a very uh, uh, expressive person. He was very 
very even keel, but I remember one thing very specifically. One of the last things my dad ever said to me, actually, is as he lay there in the hospital bed one night, and I'm sitting next to him, and he said, son, I love you. And, and both of those things meant a lot to me. The fact that he saw me as his son. I mean, of course I knew I was his son. But, but just the relationship there, right? The, the relationship that it spoke to, the closeness, the, the intimacy. It was a very intimate word, son. And, and the fact that he said, I love you. That love has stuck with me. It's, it's whenever I think of my dad, I think of that, that relationship and that love. And no doubt for, for Jesus, it was the same way. The intimacy of that relationship he had with his father, the knowledge of the fact that he was the beloved son of God. Beloved because of his faithfulness, his desire was not so much for his own will, but for the will of his father. He would, he would serve him however he could. You know, when he got baptized, he could have come up out of the waters and said, you know what, let's have, let's have a party now, right? Let's celebrate. This is an important day, right? Um, you know, invite everybody over. Let's have cake and punch, and, 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 and you know, we can head over to the church fellowship hall, and, and it'll be really nice. But, but that's not what happened, is it? Right? We see in verse 12, the Spirit immediately, there's that word again, drove him into the wilderness. Right? It calls to mind, especially this use of this word, drove. Right? It's not just led, but drove. He, he pushed him. He, he pushed him in that direction. It calls to mind Leviticus 16. The use of the scapegoat, where the people of God would figuratively place their sins upon the goat and send them out into the wilderness. The wilderness, which in Jewish thought was a place of danger and difficulty, a place of of loneliness and vulnerability, a place of testing and judgment, right? Recall the people of God during the Exodus, their 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Right? And so we see here, not 40 years, but 40 days, clearly paralleling it. Jesus was tempted by Satan. And so we see now, moving on to point two, how Jesus relates to Satan. First off, he was truly tempted, Right? Well, sometimes I think we think that, well, he's Jesus. It couldn't have been that hard. Right? He, he wasn't really tempted. Yes, he was. And, and the verb tense shows us here it was an ongoing thing. It wasn't just, you know, he, he sat around doing nothing for 40 days, and then at the end of 40 days, Satan showed up and te- tempted him. No, it was a true temptation. And the very nature of the trials, as we see in Matthew, you know, is the same nature that mirrors what Adam and Eve faced in the garden, right? First, he he appeals to his appetites. Wouldn't this taste great? He appeals to his his doubt. Can you really trust God to take care of you? He appeals to his pride. Don't you want to be like God? And it's the same thing he appeals to in us, right? He, He appeals to those same things in us, but we have something. We have a couple things. First off, the good thing is we, is we have the scouting report, right? We, 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 we know that this is what he does, right? In, in, in basketball, you know, if we, we get a scouting report, right, we say, hey, well, that, that point guard can't go to his left, right? He can't go to his left, so, so stay over on his right, 
because he's never going to go to his left. And so if you know that, you can defend him better. Right? We have the scouting report. We know what Satan's doing. We know how he goes about his work so we can be prepared for it. But even more importantly, we have Christ in us. Christ who Hebrews 4 tells us was in every respect tempted as we are, but without sin. He was tempted, but, but did not sin. Why did he not sin? It's not because he wasn't tempted. It's because there was something different in him than there is in us, right? Because James 1 tells us that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Right? It's because we have this sinful desire in us, this, this fleshly desire that Jesus did not have because he longed for the will of his Father above his own will. So the key is that we must crucify our sinful desires and live for Christ Jesus. He who was truly tempted and he was also truly faithful. He was led by God. So that's, that's what we got here. He was truly faithful and then underneath that led by God, right? Through the Holy Spirit who drove him into the wilderness. He was motivated by God, right? The love of the Father for him motivated him. And he was strengthened by God. Right? We see here that the angels were ministering to him, taking care of him, strengthening him throughout the temptation. You know, and the same can be true of us, right? You too can be led by God. You too can be motivated by God. You too can be strengthened by God. Right? If only you'll trust in God. Right? This, this message was for us just as it was for those ancient Roman Christians who first read this in the first century. Right? And that's why we see here, I think, that he was with the wild animals. It's a weird thing for Mark to include. He was with the wild animals. Well, remember this, as the historian Tacitus said of Nero's savagery toward Christians in that age, they would be covered with hides of wild beasts and torn to pieces by dogs. Right? That's what Nero would do to the Christians at times. You know, they'd be fed to the lions, we know. They, they were turned over to the wild beasts. And so they could know, even in the midst of this, even as they were martyred, they could know that Christ, too, had been with the wild beasts. And that he had endured even that which they are enduring. Nothing they could suffer at the hands of Nero would be, was alien to Christ. And nothing that you will ever suffer is alien to Christ either. And so we see finally how Jesus relates to us. First off, he stands in our place. He stands in our place in the sense that he's experienced what we experience. He, he has walked the proverbial mile in our shoes. He knows what it is like. He understands. And there's great comfort in that. But then also, he stands in our place as the last Adam, as the one who bore our sins, who, who was tempted and succeeded, 
and who went to the cross and paid our penalty, who died that all we need do is trust in him and salvation shall be ours. Furthermore, he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. Right? After John was arrested, and that's all Mark says about it. He doesn't go into any more details. He says, after that, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Whereas John the Baptist said, the kingdom is coming. Jesus says it is now here. His presence has inaugurated the kingdom. It has drawn near spatially in him. It has drawn near temporally because it is here. He says, it's, it's, it's here in me. I am the kingdom. And so he says, repent and believe the gospel. For those who believe, this will be a, a sweet savor of salvation. For those who do not, it will carry the bitter taste of judgment. But it is something that we all need to hear. Repent and believe the gospel. Trust in Jesus. Finally, he calls us to follow him. That's your final fill in the blank there. He calls us to follow him. Trusting does not simply mean having a cognitive faith. It just says, okay, I believe that. Move on. Right? There's something more to it. We have to follow him. We need to go along where he goes. We see that passing alongside the Sea of Galilee in six, verse 16, he calls Simon and then Andrew, his brother. They were fishermen, and that's what they did for a living. That's, that's how they spent their days, their time. That's how they earned a living. That, that was the major chunk of their waking hours was fishing. And Jesus said to them, follow me, for I will make you fishers of men. He's telling them that, that just as they pulled fish out of the sea and into their boat, so he shall charge them with the duty of, of pulling men out of the world and into the kingdom. Note how they responded. Verse 18, immediately they left their nuts and followed him. No hesitancy. Immediately they realized that Christ's claim on their lives superseded every other claim. And so he goes on a little bit further and he sees James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And we read, immediately he called to them and they left their father Zebedee with the hired servants and followed him. Their job, their family, everything that was their life meant nothing compared to the one who was calling them now. And so it should be with us. As Christ calls us, we must follow him. Right? The call on our lives is that we might lift high his cross to the glory of his name that the light of Christ might shine through us as a watching world looks on, that they might see him, that we might proclaim him in word and in deed, that Christ might be exalted, that through us he might bring a holy peace, even today, that will one day be completed when Christ Jesus returns. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we, we thank you that indeed 
it is the case that you are our king. And as such, we are members of your kingdom. We trust in you now to be at work in and through us. Build your kingdom and make us a part of that building. Help us to serve you faithfully, even as you are always faithful. For we ask it for your sake. Amen.